By the end of 1862, the Union war effort was faltering. The offensive to take Vicksburg ended with the defeats at Holly Springs and Chickasaw Bayou. In Virginia, Ambrose Burnside was bested at Fredericksburg. The only good news was a hard-earned victory at Prairie Grove in Arkansas, but that theater was relatively remote. President Abraham Lincoln hoped an even bigger victory would shore up the North's faltering morale, particularly as the controversial Emancipation Proclamation was set to take effect on January 1st. Lincoln pinned his hopes for a victory on 14th Corps, posted in central Tennessee. It was commanded by Major General William S. Rosecrans. Despite a lack of formal education, Rosecrans made it to West Point by giving an impressive interview with Ohio Representative Alexander Harper, who had earlier been planning to send his own son. Rosecrans was exceptionally intelligent and a successful businessman and inventor. In 1859, Rosecrans was burned when his experimental oil lamp exploded setting the refinery on fire. It took him 18 months to recover, and the resulting facial scars gave him the appearance of having a perpetual smirk. Rosecrans was willful, proud, and not afraid to buck trends or superiors. He converted to Catholicism in 1845 against his family's wishes and in a society dominated by Protestants. He was energetic, but in battle he could lose his poise. So far, Rosecrans had done well, winning battles in West Virginia in 1861 and defeating an offensive launched by Robert E. Lee. His victories at Iuka and Corinth in Mississippi made him the North's most popular soldier in winter of 1862. However, the victories made Major General Ulysses S. Grant jealous, and the two men despised each other. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton did not like Rosecrans, and Major General Henry Halleck, the commander of the Union Army, was lukewarm. While Rosecrans could be difficult, his status was also shaky, because he was a Democrat, and it was widely believed that whoever came out of the war with the most laurels would become president. As such, Democratic generals were often undermined by the Republican Party that controlled the federal government. Nevertheless, Rosecrans had allies in the Republican Party, and Lincoln considered him to be a talented commander. 14th Corps was divided into three wings. The left wing was commanded by Major General Thomas Crittenden. He came from a powerful Kentucky family that was divided by the war. His brother George was a Confederate general. Crittenden helped organize the Unionist Kentucky State Guard in 1861, and he was popular in the press and with his men, since he was unpretentious and a fine public speaker. He was also an alcoholic, and famously once got drunk and sang Mary Had a Little Lamb with his fellow officers. The right wing was commanded by Major General Alexander McCook. He was one of the Fighting McCooks, a family which furnished four Union generals. McCook was only 31, but had already fought in the Indian Wars, taught tactics at West Point, and led troops at Shiloh and Perryville. He was not well respected. Brigadier General Samuel Beatty called him a chucklehead, and Major General William Tecumseh Sherman once derided him as a juvenile. To his men, he was known as Gut for his potbelly. McCook was considered a good dinner companion because he was skilled at joking, singing, drinking, and swearing. Rosecrans' most trusted subordinate was Major General George Henry Thomas, commander of the center wing. Thomas was born on a Virginia plantation. His pre-war record was excellent, including combat in the Seminole Wars and the Mexican-American War, followed by a stint at West Point as an instructor. During a clash with the Comanche at Clear Fork, Texas, Thomas was shot with an arrow. It passed through his chin and then into his chest. Thomas pulled the arrow out and... After a surgeon dressed the wound, 
continued to lead the expedition. Being from Virginia, Thomas grappled with whether to stay loyal or to go south, but in the end, he stayed loyal, and his family completely rejected him, with his sister declaring that he was dead. Sadly, Thomas formed few close emotional bonds once he declared, I have taken a great deal of pains to educate myself not to feel. Yet he was one of the best tacticians of the war, and had pre-war experience commanding infantry, cavalry, and artillery. He won a major victory at Mill Springs, but was sluggish at Perryville. Lincoln considered making him commander of the 14th Corps, only to go with Rosecrans. Thankfully, the two got along well, with Thomas acting as Rosecrans' unofficial advisor. The 50,000 men of the 14th Corps was opposed by the 40,000 men of the Confederate Army of Tennessee. It was commanded by General Braxton Bragg. Bragg was a North Carolina native who did well at West Point and in the Mexican-American War. At Buena Vista, Zachary Taylor told him, double shot your guns and give them hell, Bragg. When Taylor ran for president among his campaign slogans was a cleaner version of his orders to Bragg, give them a little more grape, Captain Bragg. Bragg used his status as a war hero to marry into a wealthy Louisiana family and became a sugarcane planter. Bragg openly supported secession and was rewarded with command of Louisiana's troops in 1861. Bragg had considerable flaws. He suffered from rheumatism, dyspepsia, severe migraine headaches, and even hemorrhoids. Bragg's health issues made him sensitive to those who were ill, and he made a point to visit soldiers in the hospital. However, it also made him testy. He almost fought a duel when a reporter called North Carolina a strip of land lying between two states. He was exacting, demanding, and harsh in administering discipline. As a commander, Bragg was an uncreative tactician, often relying upon frontal assaults. However, he had a good grasp of strategy and rarely complained when given orders. Confederate President Jefferson Davis, who had feuded with Bragg before the war, gradually came to respect him as the Civil War dragged on. Bragg was saddled with a rather poor cadre of corps commanders. His greatest nemesis was Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk, Although a West Point graduate of high standing, Polk served less than six months after graduation, entering the Virginia Theological Seminary. He then resided in Maury County, Tennessee, and was among the state's biggest slave owners. He spearheaded the creation of the University of the South in order to give the elite of Dixie an alternative to northern universities. As Episcopal Bishop of Louisiana, he gave sermons in support of slavery and disunion. Polk's friendship with Davis ensured him a high command. He invaded Kentucky in 1861, which damaged the Confederate cause in the state. His generalship at Shiloh and Perryville was uninspired. Yet, he was brave, charismatic, and opposed harsh punishments. He led an anti-Bragg clique and tried to have Bragg replaced with General Joseph E. Johnston. Lieutenant General William J. Hardee commanded the other corps. Although he was average at West Point and captured in the Mexican-American War, he was a Jefferson Davis favorite. In 1855, Hardee published Rifle and Light Infantry Tactics, popularly known as Hardee's Tactics. It was mostly a translation of French tactical methods and became the best-known drill manual of the Civil War. However, Hardee was unimaginative and also friendly with the anti-Bragg clique. Joseph E. Johnson once said, Hardee likes the show of war, but dislikes its labors and responsibilities. He was considered a dandy. He was known for enjoying fine clothing, a good glass of wine, and dancing with women. After the invasion of Kentucky, 
Bragg placed his army in the fertile farmland and pro-secessionist hotbed of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. It made for a good winter camp, although better defensive ground could be found further south. Davis came to inspect the army and smooth over command disputes. In a dramatic flourish, he promoted Colonel John Hunt Morgan after he captured the Union garrison at Hartsville, Tennessee. Davis, despite Bragg's protests, then sent an 8,000-man division led by Major General Carter L. Stevenson to Vicksburg. Davis, though, did broker a truce between Bragg and his enemies. Such a truce could last if accompanied with a victory. In the Union camp, Rosecrans improved training and supply, turning down initial requests by Lincoln to attack Bragg. Major General David Stanley, a caustic and hard-fighting commander, right, organized the cavalry. Most of the infantry had seen combat at Mill Springs, Shiloh, and Perryville. The soldiers were veterans, morale was high, and by December, Rosecrans was confident. In December, Rosecrans sent his army marching south towards Murfreesboro at Lincoln's behest. Bragg was taken by surprise. His army was encamped and not set up in a defensive position. The area was mostly a series of low hills and thick woods, occasionally sprinkled with limestone outcroppings. Despite the poor terrain, Bragg decided to defend the city. While he formed up his men, Brigadier General Joseph Wheeler raided the Union rear and destroyed many supply wagons. Regardless, Rosecrans pressed on. 14th Corps arrived at Murfreesboro in pieces, and Rosecrans allowed his men to take up position north of the town. While the armies formed up, both generals planned to attack on December 31st. Bragg wanted to hit the exposed Federal right and center with four divisions. Rosecrans wanted Crittenden to cross the sluggish Stones River and seize the heights north of Murfreesboro and turn Bragg's right flank. Bragg would attack at 6 a.m. and Rosecrans at 7 a.m. On the night of December 30th, the bands from both armies fought a musical duel that ended in both playing Home Sweet Home. Hours later, though, Bragg's flank attack began. The initial Confederate attack shattered McCook's lines. Some 3,000 men were taken prisoner, and about 28 cannons fell into rebel hands. Meanwhile, Crittenden's flank attack was slowed down by rough terrain and rebel artillery fire. Crittenden's advance was called off once Rosecrans realized that McCook's wing was unraveling. In the center, the Union put up a better fight. Major General Philip Sheridan's division turned back several attacks made by Major General Jones Withers' division. Major General Benjamin Cheatham, commander of the Tennessee Division, was drunk and ordered a series of piecemeal attacks that led to high losses. Although he gained greater fame at Cedar Creek, Stones River was perhaps Sheridan's finest hour. After four hours of fighting, his men fell back towards the woods and a rocky outcropping that became known as the Slaughter Pen. Losses, though, were high. All three of Sheridan's brigade commanders died in battle, including his friend, Brigadier General Joshua W. Sill. Rosecrans was in top form at Stones River. He rode among the troops, rallying units and giving confidence to his shaken men. During the fighting, his lieutenant colonel, Julius Peter Garrachet, Rosecrans' friend and chief of staff, was decapitated by a cannonball. Although his uniform was smeared with blood and brains, Rosecrans stayed in the front. On the Confederate side, Hardy halted to reorganize his men. Polk wisely put a stop to the pointless attacks of Withers and Cheatham. 
A short lull then developed. Running low on ammunition, Sheridan had his men fix bayonets and fall back. This caused a hole that was exploited by Major General Patrick Claiborne. He was from Ireland, a former private in the British Army who moved to Arkansas. He loved the South and fought explicitly to defend his new home. Although not an abolitionist, he later advocated freeing slaves to fight in the Confederate Army. He was one of the war's best division commanders. His attack on the Gap forced the Union to fall back. The third Union line was along the Nashville Turnpike, Rosecrans' only escape route. If it fell, 14th Corps would be cut off from his supplies and would be forced to either surrender or withdraw to the east, where forage was poor and the railroad was distant. Nashville might even be retaken. However, by striking the Union right, Bragg had forced it back into a ball, giving Rosecrans a tighter defensive position. The Confederates were also exhausted and lacking Stevenson's division, had few units capable of exploiting Cleburne's advance. Bragg had Major General John Breckinridge's division redeployed from the rebel right to the center with orders to break Rosecrans' line. Breckinridge was a former vice president. He did not join the Confederacy until he found out that Lincoln intended to arrest him for his opposition to the war. Breckinridge was charismatic and aggressive and one of the Army's best commanders. However, Stones River was not Breckinridge's finest hour failed to attack when ordered, and by the time he was ready, the Union left was anchored on a small forest held by a crack brigade led by Brigadier General William B. Hazen, one of the hardest fighting generals of the war. In what became known as Hell's Half Acre, the Union Army turned back several Confederate attacks. On December 31st, with the Union lines holding, 14th Corps had fought a savage battle and was nearly crushed, but managed to survive. That night, Rosecrans met with his wing commanders. McCook advised Rosecrans to retreat. Crittenden favored fighting on. Thomas, who was quiet for most of the meeting, declared, this army does not retreat. Although one officer reported overhearing him say, there's no better place to die. Either way, Thomas's opinion ended the debate. The army would stand. In the Confederate camp, Bragg was confident that Rosecrans would retreat and informed Davis he had won a great victory. Just as both Bragg and Rosecrans had the same battle plans on December 31st, each slept that night confident of victory on January 1st. The next day frustrated both generals. Bragg was surprised to find Rosecrans standing firm. He ordered Wheeler to disrupt Rosecrans' supply trains and perhaps force him back. Polk, meanwhile, was advising a retreat. In the Union camp, Rosecrans had Crittenden cross Stones River to attack Bragg's right. This move was bungled. However, Bragg was worried after Crittenden's failed maneuver. He ordered Breckinridge to assault Crittenden on January 2nd. At first, Breckinridge's attack was successful. However, once his men crossed Stones River, they were met by some 45 cannon. The ensuing slaughter cost the Confederates over 1,000 men, with most of the losses falling on the Kentucky Brigade. Breckinridge, a Kentuckian himself, had led these men at Shiloh and Baton Rouge. He now cried out, my poor orphans, my poor orphans, as they came streaming back. After Stones River, they became known as the Orphan Brigade. On January 3rd, Rosecrans received reinforcements and supplies. It was clear Wheeler had failed in his mission. A limited Union attack in the center was a success. The Confederate Army was shot up and dispirited. The officers were grumbling, and most were advising a retreat. Bragg withdrew south towards Tullahoma. Nearly 13,000 Union troops were lost at Stones River, as compared to over 11,000 for the Confederates. 
with losses at 24,000, Stones River surpassed more famous battles such as Fredericksburg, Second Bull Run, Shiloh, and Antietam in terms of losses. It also remains the bloodiest major Civil War battle by percentage, with 36% of all combatants becoming casualties. victory at Stones River was hailed all across the North. The news from Stones River buoyed hopes, particularly in the Midwest, where anti-war and anti-Lincoln feelings had been ascendant. 14th Corps was renamed the Army of the Cumberland, and its morale, confidence, and tactical proficiency improved after the battle. Rosecans received accolades from across the nation. Even Stanton praised him. However, Rosecrans did not advance past Murfreesboro. The winter was brutal, and Rosecrans and Stanley wanted to improve their cavalry before attacking again. Whatever hopes there were for Confederate command harmony after Morgan's victory at Hartsville were destroyed at Stones River. Both Polk and Bragg blamed each other for the defeat. The Confederate high command spent months after the battle fighting itself as much as the Union Army. In addition, the most fertile part of Middle Tennessee was now in Union hands. The Confederate position in the West never recovered after the defeat at Stones River. From January to June 1863, the two armies remained inert, with only the cavalry seeing much action. Bragg rebuilt his army and survived another round of attacks from his critics. Davis was all but ready to fire him when Joseph Johnston, impressed with his organizational ability, advised Davis to keep Bragg. In the Union camp, Rosecrans relentlessly trained his men instead of advancing. Lincoln, grateful for Stone's River, kept him in command despite growing disgust at his inaction. In June of 1863, Rosecrans outmaneuvered Bragg at Tullahoma and then at Chattanooga in September. However, there were no great battles such as those happening at Vicksburg, Port Hudson, and Gettysburg. Rosecrans' achievements were ignored. Stanton and Halleck were looking for a replacement, and Grant, who had taken Vicksburg, seemed to be the man. Yet Rosecrans was still a successful and popular general. They could not afford to remove him without good reason. Stanton, Halleck, and Grant got their excuse when Rosecrans was defeated at Chickamauga. Rosecrans was replaced with Thomas, and Grant came to oversee Chattanooga's defense. Bragg, though, hardly benefited from his victory. He bickered with his commanders and failed to retake Chattanooga. In November of 1863, the Confederate Army was routed, and Bragg was replaced with Johnston. Although Grant played only a small role in the victory, he reaped most of the praise. Months later, he became commander of the Union Army. He had Rosecrans send off to Missouri, and then removed him even after Rosecrans managed to successfully defend the state from invasion in September of 1864. The ascendancy of Grant to command of the Army, the Presidency, and his place as the North's premier military hero meant Rosecrans was overshadowed and his victories ignored. Ken Birds did not even mention Corinth and Stones River in his documentary. One reason was because the most famous commanders of the war were not present those being Grant, Sherman, Lee, and Stonewall Jackson. Much of America's memory of the Civil War revolves around these men. Bragg became a scapegoat for Confederate defeat, and the lost cause myth of the war concentrated on Virginia, where the rebels won most of the battles. The Union myth of the war, sometimes called the just cause, concentrated on Grant's role in the victory. Rosecrans had no real place in the Pantheon since he was despised by Grant and his friends. Indeed, when Grant met Lincoln after Richmond fell, Lincoln gave Grant a list of the Union's most important victories, which included Stone's River. Grant, who was notorious for holding a grudge, 
declared Stones River was not a victory. Lincoln disagreed, and the men parted ways. Shortly after, Lincoln was killed by John Wilkes Booth in Washington, D.C. Stones River remained forgotten to all but the men who fought it. In late 1863, at Hell's Half Acre, Hazen's Brigade erected a monument. It was dedicated to the dead they left at Shiloh, Stones River, and Chickamauga. Around the Hazen Brigade monument, Thomas had a cemetery established in 1864. In 1926, a national battlefield was created featuring Rosecrans' last line, the slaughter pen, Hell's Half Acre, and the fatal charge of the Orphan Brigade. The rest was subsumed by Murfreesboro as the city grew and tried to forget the slaughter of the war. Among the veterans of Stones River was Lieutenant Ambrose Bierce, a member of Hazen's Brigade. In the twilight of his life, he wrote a short story called A Resumed Identity. In the story, an age Union veteran visits the battlefield and sees ghosts of Confederate soldiers marching about. He thinks he's 23 again, and the war is still being fought. The story ends with these lines. At a little distance, a small plot of ground enclosed by a stone wall caught his attention. With no very definite intent, he rose and went to it. In the center was a square, solid monument of hewn stone. It was brown with age, weather-worn at the angles, spotted with moss and lichen. Between the massive blocks were strips of grass, the leverage of whose roots had pushed them apart. In answer to the challenge of this ambitious structure, time had laid his destroying hand upon it, and it would soon be one with Nineveh and Tyre. In an inscription on one side, his eye caught a familiar name. Shaking with excitement, he craned his body across the wall and read, Hazen's Brigade, to the memory of its fallen soldiers, who fell at Stones River, December 31st, 1862. The man fell back from the wall, faint and sick. Almost within an arm's length was a little depression in the earth. It had been filled with a recent rain, a pool of clear water. He crept to it to revive himself, lifted the upper part of his body to his trembling arms, thrust forward his head, and saw the reflection of his face as in a mirror. He uttered a terrible cry. His arms gave way. He fell, face downward, into the pool, and yielded up the life that had spanned another life. <laughs>